want to study John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. First of all, we need to get the setting. We want to look by way of introduction into four or five things. One of them is the setting of John chapter 7 and 8, the time. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. John chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. John chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. I'm having a little trouble finding it. Oh, here it is. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So this incident, John chapter 7 and 8, took place at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now let's look at the time references. John chapter 2, verse 13. There are about six time references in John. You don't find these in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You do find them in John. Look at John chapter 2, verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. What event do we have in John chapter 2, 13? Passover. April 27 A.D., Passover. Look at John chapter 5, verse 1. What do we have there? A feast of the Jews, probably Passover. The second Passover, April 28 A.D. Look at John chapter 6, verse 4. John 6, 4. What do we have in John 6, 4? Passover, April 29 A.D., the third Passover. John chapter 7, verse 2. John chapter 7, verse 2. What do we have in 7-2? Feast of Tabernacles, October, six months later. October 29 A.D. Look at John chapter 10, verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. What do we have there? Feast of dedication, celebrating the rededication of the temple after the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. That took place around December 25, about December 25, 26, 27. And so this one is December 29 A.D. Now let's look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 1. What do we have here? John chapter 12, verse 1. Yes, six days before the Passover. Six days. Six days before the Passover. John chapter 12, probably around uh, uh, Saturday night. Saturday night prior to his crucifixion the following Friday. Six days before Passover. John chapter 13, verse 1. What do we have in John 13, verse 1? Yeah, that's on Thursday night. Thursday night. Friday was crucified. John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17, John 18, and John 19 all take place within 24 hours. 24 hours. The washing of the disciples' feet took place after sunset Thursday night. Jesus Christ was taken off the cross, John 19, and buried before sunset Friday night. So John 13 to 19 all took place within the span of 24 hours. And then John chapter 20 is three days later, Sunday. See? So you look up here. I've charted it on the blackboard, and hopefully this will 
uh, give you some idea of this. And if I can, because this is a little limited, I'm going to pull this out over here so you can see it a little easier. Here is the whole uh, chronological structure of the, of the Gospel of John. And John is probably the best one as far as giving us chronological references. We have John chapter 2, verse 13, we have the first Passover. That's probably 27 A.D. Now, how do you get that? Well, there are three ways to get it, but I'm not gonna, we're not going to look at them. You have to get a good life of Christ to find it out. April 27, uh, first Passover. Now, before this, we had, uh, uh, we had, he went down to Capernaum and spent several days. He uh, went to Canaan and turned the water into wine. He called the early disciples in John chapter 1. He spent 40 days in the wilderness temptation, and he was baptized. So he began his public ministry about October 26 A.D. October 26 A.D. What was the first event in the public ministry of Jesus? Baptism, baptism. How many of you have been listening to my radio broadcast? What have I been speaking on? Five baptisms associated with Christ. Five baptisms. And I hope when you, you've been listening, you never pray, Oh, Lord, give me the baptism of fire. Because that, well, you'll have to listen to the broadcast to find out what that is. But he started... Baptism was the first thing, and then 40 days temptation to wilderness, then the call of the first disciples, we read that in John 1, then the feast at Cain of Galilee, and then down to Capernaum, not many days, probably two or three weeks, and then down to Jerusalem for the first Passover, John 2.13. Then between this Passover and this Passover, one year. Then in John chapter 5, he went back, down or back up to Jerusalem for the second Passover. And there he healed that impotent man. John chapter 5 and gave that great discourse on his person. John 5. Then one year more goes by between John 5 and 6 and we come to the third Passover. John chapter 6. Only this time he does not go down to Jerusalem. This, where did the feeding of the 5,000 take place in John 6? Memphis? Where did it take place? Well, it took uh, place north and east of the Sea of Galilee. He fed the 5,000. And then he got in a what? A boat. And crossed over the western side and went to Capernaum. And then gave that great discourse in John 6 in the synagogue at Capernaum. And so that took place in April 29, one year. Now John 7 and John 8 all go together. John 7 and John 8 all go together. Look at John chapter 7, verse 2. What time does it say there in John 7, 2? The Feast of Tabernacles is what? At hand. It's about ready to begin. Now look at John 7, 14. Or is it John 7, 50? There's a time note, John 7, is it 7? In the middle of the feast. The feast lasted eight days, so right the middle of the feast. He went down there and showed himself about the middle of the feast, about the fourth day. Now look at verse 37. That last day, that great day of the feast, 
What, what, what time was it then, John 7, 37? Last day of the feast? Last day of the feast? There's no time between John 7 and John 8. So the servant in John chapter 8 is also preached on the last day of the feast. So this took place at the feast of, what do you call that? Tabernacles, tabernacles, October. So May, June, July, August, May, June, July, August, September, October. Six months, six months between chapter 6 and chapter 7, 8. Six months, six months. Then, then we have the we have in John chapter two twenty two. We won't look at it now. We have the feast of dedication. So this material in John nine one to chapter ten twenty one takes place between October twenty nine and December uh, twenty nine A.D. Between October and December, somewhere in between there, the uh, John chapter nine, the healing of that man born blind, John 9, and in John 10, I am the good shepherd. There ought not to be any chapter division between John 9 and John 10. That takes place somewhere in these two months. Then John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42, look at John chapter 10, verse 22. What event there? Feast of what? Dedication. Feast of dedication or rededication. Rededication. It's held today. Held today. Feast of dedication or the feast of rededication. Held today. And, um, and uh, that, uh, the rest of chapter tw uh, 10 takes place at that time. So there are two months between these, October, November, December. Two months. Then John chapter 11, the resurrection, of last, what is John chapter 12, verse 1? John 12, 1, what is it? Pas six days, is it before Passover? Six days. All right, what's John chapter 10, verse 22? John, dedication. What is John 22? John 10, 22? Dedication, December. December. What is John 12, 1? Six days of uh, April. So John 11, the resurrection of Lazarus, takes place somewhere in these four months. He's somewhere, probably closer to this than it is to this. Probably closer to this. Here he's in Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, where when he raises Lazarus, Bethany is right next two miles, three miles from Jerusalem. They had to send way off to Transjordan to find Jesus and bring him down to raise Lazarus. So he's not in Jerusalem, and he's not at Bethany. He's over in Transjordan somewhere, and they bring him on down, and he heals, he raises Lazarus somewhere between December 29 and April 30 A.D. Then John chapter 12, what do we have in John 12, 1? Six days, is that right? Before what? Passover. Six days before Passover. That's on Saturday night. He leaves Jericho on Friday. He gets up to Bethany at the home of Mary, Mars, and Lazarus on Saturday, on, on Friday afternoon. And from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, they can't do anything. It's the Sabbath day. 
And then Saturday night, they have that banquet described in John chapter 12. Uh, and Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are there. That takes place on Saturday night. And all the events in John chapter 12 take place on Saturday night prior to the Friday of his crucifixion, six days before that. Then John chapter 13, verse 1, what is it? Passover. John 13, 1 through 19 is all on what night? Thursday night to Friday morning. Thursday night after 6 to Friday morning. He's taken up to Pilate, and at 9 o'clock, by 9 o'clock, he's on the cross, crucified. And he's taken off about 3.45 or 4 o'clock Friday afternoon, put in and taken to the tomb, and put in the tomb before the sun set. And those are the events of John. Now, I take it longer than I anticipated, taking about 20 minutes to cover that. But it's not going to do any good unless you write it down and take it home and work it through. So I'm going to question some of you next time. What I'd really like to do is to give some quizzes. That's what I ought to do, see. But I know that I couldn't do it, so I wouldn't. But, you know, your coming here isn't going to really help unless you go home and study this and work it through. And it's not hard to work through. And you'll find, if you won't mind moving that a little, I want to keep an eye on you two fellas, especially when we take the collection. Uh, so you won't slip away. But uh, you ought to get that in mind. It's not difficult. And then you can work through and know something of the, uh, the life of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus. Now, secondly, by way of introduction, where did this take place? John chapter 7 and 8, where did it take place? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and more specifically, where in Jerusalem? John chapter 7, whereabouts in Jerusalem, more specifically? Uh, well, the tabernacle wasn't standing, it was the temple. You know, the temple took place in the tabernacle. But primarily in the temple is where it, uh, where it took place. Look at John 7, 14. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the where? So, John 7 8 take place primarily in the temple. Now, this event, John chapter 7, verse 2, is the Feast of Tabernacles. Are the, um, uh, there were three great feasts in the uh, Jewish calendar. There were seven feasts. How many of you have ever studied the Feast of Jehovah? Leviticus 23. Well, that's two. I wish you, you know, I wish you hadn't raised your hand. We'd add 100%. All right, if you study them, you know that there are seven great feasts called the Feast of the Lord, seven great feasts that God gave to Israel. And these great feasts typify uh, events in the life of the Christian and in the life of Jesus Christ. He speaks, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you won't understand part of the New Testament unless you understand these feasts. He says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7, and 8, uh, he says, uh, 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 For Christ, our purge out the old leaven that you may be a new love. For even Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with unleavened bread, not with the leavened bread, but with unleavened bread. Now, what is the feast to which he's referring? The Lord's Supper 
Not at all. What is that feast? No, 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 it's not. It's a feast that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. There were two feasts. One was the Passover. The second was the feast of unleavened bread. That lasted for seven days. And in that feast of unleavened bread, uh, they, uh, they took out all leaven. Couldn't allow any leaven in the house. And they had separate. I, I studied under a man, I studied Hebrew in Old Testament under a converted rabbi, Dallas Seminary, who studied for the rabbinate. He had been reared in an Orthodox Hebrew home. And he, he said his mother had two sets of silver, one for 51 weeks in the year, and the second set for the 52nd week. They only use that. They're very careful, cleaning their house of any leaven. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a figure of speech, a type of the Christian life. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Let us, therefore, keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, what is that Feast of Unleavened Bread? That's the whole Christian life. And you'll need to understand something of these feasts in order to, uh, uh, to understand some references in the New Testament. Now, there were three great feasts uh, for which every Jew who lived within a radius of 20 miles was expected to attend. Every Jew who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was expected to attend three feasts in the every year in the calendar. One was the Feast of Passover, one was the Feast of Pentecost, and one was the Feast of Tabernacles. What did, what did, um, what did uh, Passover typify? The death of Christ. You surely know that. What did Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, typify? The descent of the Holy Spirit. When did the Holy Spirit descend? On the day of Pentecost, 50 days afterward, signifying the birthday of the church. Then we have the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles fell at the beginning of October, and it's held today. Sometimes called the Feast of Ingathering, and sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. And every male Jew living within 20 miles of Jerusalem <clears throat> was bound to attend the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Passover and the Feast of uh, Pentecost. And um, it lasted for eight days. And not only did the Jews with a radius of 20 miles come in and attend it, but Orthodox Jews from all over the Greco-Roman world attended, if they could, the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles. <clears throat> and at these feasts, Jerusalem would be swollen with two or three times its normal population. What if Memphis, which has, let's say, 600,000 population, what if, if three times a year it had a million two hundred thousand or a million eight hundred thousand people? Where would they stay? Well, you say they'd probably pitch a lot of tents out there. That's exactly what they did down there. They made, uh, they took boughs, uh, trees, and made tents, and they lived out on the hillside and out of the countryside, and they attended the Feast of Tabernacles during those eight days. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering, and sometimes called the uh, Feast of Booths, uh, when 
My wife and I were first married. We lived uh, next door to, uh, we lived in a duplex, and next to us was uh, an Orthodox Jewish family. And uh, uh, we could always tell it a special piece because you had a connecting heating system. And some of those garlic uh, concoctions drifted over to our home. And, uh, but I remember one time, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, a little girl came next door and knocked and, and uh, wanted to show me something. She had made a little, uh, little model, a little model of a booth rep where the Jews would live, representing where they would live during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering. And uh, they were Orthodox Jews and they attended at this time where it was held, and they wanted to. She wanted to show it to me. This is one of the great um, events in the calendar of the Jews. Now, it typified two things. Without getting into it, historically, <clears throat> the Feast of Tabernacles historically uh, typified, reminded the Jews of the Exodus. That's why they dwelt in booths, in tents. Reminded them of the forty years in which they lived out in the wilderness and were sojourners. That was its historical significance. You find that in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 40 to 43. Secondly, it was significant agriculturally, and that's why it's called the Feast of Ingathering. And it was supremely a harvest Thanksgiving. Do we have Thanksgiving once a year? Yes. That goes back to early American history. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering was the same thing. It was a harvest feast, a harvest Thanksgiving, and it celebrated the harvest, the great harvest that God had given to them. And that's given to us in Exodus 23, verse 60, and several other places. Now, there, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted eight days. And you'll want to observe that there are three time indications in John 7 and 8. John 7, verse 2 is the first one. What is that? At the time, near the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, verse 2. The second one is in John chapter 7, verse 14. What time note is found there? The middle of it. The third or fourth day, about the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then John chapter 7, verse 37, what do we have? The last day, that's the eighth day of the feast. And probably from John 37 on to John chapter 8, verse 51 and 52, that all takes place on the same day. Now you're going to say, well, look at John chapter 8, verse 53. Every man went to his own house. In John 8, 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In John 8, 2, early in the morning, there speaks of the days in between. Well, you know there's a problem with the text of the story of the woman taken in adultery, and we won't get on to that until we get to that place. All right, now let's look at John chapter 7. I might say one other thing, that when we come to this, we're going to find different groups challenge Jesus. And the discourse that Jesus gave takes the form of a dialogue. They challenge him, he responds. They challenge him, he responds. Did we find this in John chapter 6? Yes. They challenged him, and in response, he told them the nature of the bread of life. And at the end, he said the bread of life is he which came down from heaven.
So secondly, they challenged him about that statement. We know where this Jesus came from. We know his mother and daddy. Where does he get off saying that he came down from heaven? They challenged him on that. And he answers that. And then he ends it by saying that you've got to eat my flesh. And so they challenged him the third time, John 6. How can we eat his flesh? How can he give his flesh for the life of the world? So he answers them by saying, you not only have to eat my flesh, you also got to drink my blood. He gives them the answer. Now, John 7, 8, we find the same thing. A dialogue, which they challenge him, and he responds. He's, first of all, look at just briefly at about six to seven verses. By whom is he challenged in John chapter 7, verse 3? By whom? By his brothers. He's challenged by his unbelieving brothers. Look at John chapter 7, verse 14. Verse 15, by whom is he challenged? By the Jews. Now, that's a technical term which refers to the Jewish leadership, the members of the Sanhedrin, not to all the Jews. We need to keep that in mind, and I hope you're listening to this. When we say that the Jews crucified Christ, when the Bible says that the Jews crucified Christ, we need to keep in mind that that term, the Jews, is a technical term for the Jewish leadership, primarily the Sanhedrin. Among the Jews, there were many that responded to Jesus, even in his own lifetime. And after his, after his death and resurrection, uh, hundreds and thousands of Jews responded and accepted the gospel. Matter of fact, the first church was a Jewish church. So when we say that the Jews crucified Jesus and the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus, we need to be careful to remember that that term, the Jews, is primarily and first of all a technical term for the Jewish leadership. And they're the ones that challenge him. Now look at John chapter 7, verse 20, who challenges him in chapter 7, 20. The, gen the people there in the temple, the general populace, Look at John chapter 7, 25. Who challenges them there? And there's some from Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites. There are a lot of people there from Galilee. The, especially the Jerusalemites challenge them here. Look at John chapter 7, verse 32. Who challenged them there? Pharisees, 745. Who's there? Officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. John chapter 8, verse 13. Who challenged him in 8, 13? Pharisees. Same thing in 8, 19. They said, that's the Pharisees. Where is your father? 8, chapter 8, verse 22. Then said who? Yes, the leadership, the Jews. Chapter 8, verse 25. Who's there? Same people as 8, 22. The leadership, the Jews. Chapter 8, verse 33. They answered in the same group, same group. 839, they answered him. Same group, 848. Then answered who? The leadership, the Jews. They answered him. You're a Samaritan, you're demon-possessed. And then verse 57, who responded? The leadership, the Jewish leadership, and verse 59, what's the third word in verse 59? They took up stones. Who? Primarily 
the Jews, the leadership. All right, now let's start with the, you've got on your outline, you've got on your outline study, do you, the outline? How many points do we have in that outline? Seven points? All right, what's the first one? The setting? The second one, the divided opinion, the occasion. Number two, the divided opinion about Christ. Number three, the dialogue. Four, the supreme appeal. Five, the woman taking adultery. Six, the discourse of Christ. And seven, the issue, which is John 8, 59. Somehow I left that out. I left it out to find out whether anybody discovered it, whether or not anybody ever read these things. <laughs> All right, John 8, 59, that's the, that's the sequel. Well, I called it there the issue, the controversy. They take up stones to kill Jesus. Now, let's see. I wanted to get through verse 24, but I can see we're only going to get through verse 13. So let's begin. John chapter 8, John chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. That's the occasion of all this. And the occasion is, is uh, the request of the brothers, to Jesus, to go up to uh, Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacle. Let's read this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Judea. you got Jewry. That's down where the Jewish headquarters are, down in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. That's the leadership. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there's no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. That is, if a man wants to be known openly accepted, he's going to hire a public relations firm. He's going to get out in the front. Now, you want to be known and accepted publicly, you're going to have to get out in the public and let them know who you are. So come on down. If you are what you claim to be, then come on down and, and do these things, these miracles. Show yourself to the world for neither did his brothers believe him. Then Jesus said to them, My time is not yet. Uh, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. When he had said these words unto them, he stayed still, in Galilee. Now here's the occasion. The occasion is the delay of Jesus in attending the Feast of Tabernacles. Look first at the setting in verses 1 and 2. We fairly well covered that in the introduction already. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Judea. Where, has mo where have most of the events in John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 taken place? Judea or Galilee? Judea. John 6 took place in Galilee. John 4, 44 to 54 in Galilee. And John chapter 2, turning water into wine, Cana of Galilee. But most of these events, by and far, took place down south in Judea. John chapter 5 took place in Judea. And all the events uh, surrounding John 2 and 3 took place in Judea. The cleansing of the temple, the sermon on the new birth. But Jesus said, not now. Not now am I going to go down there. Because he did not want the man prior to the birth of Jesus. But they maintained that from then on she never had any relationship with the man, that she was perpetually a virgin. 
if she's a perpetually a virgin, then these could not be her children, nor could they be Joseph's children. Who are they? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says that they were cousins. Now, that's nine, the Hieronymian theory because it's named after Jerome, who was the great ancient leader of uh, Roman Catholicism. Now, the second view is that these brothers of Jesus were stepbrothers, that they were uh, brothers of Jesus, they were sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. Joseph was married previously. His first wife died, and then he married Mary. And these were, and these were uh, children by a previous marriage. And after that, Mary and Joseph had no sexual relationship, maintained also the perpetual virginity. Now, the, the Protestant church maintains that these are half-brothers of Jesus in the sense that their mother was Mary and their father was Joseph. So they had the same mother, but not the same father. And they are subsequent children of Joseph and Mary, natural children of Joseph and Mary, and so half-brothers of Jesus. Now, two of them wrote epistles, didn't they? Who wrote epistles? James and Jude. James and Jude. Not Peter, not John. James and Jude. We believe that those were two of Christ's brothers. Four of them are named over in Matthew chapter 13. Now, these brothers made a suggestion. Nobody, no man who wants to be publicly known and received remains in obscurity. Therefore, if you are the Messiah, and they didn't believe he was, but if you are the Messiah and you want to be accepted as the Messiah, then you're going to have to go down to Jerusalem, perform some miracles, do it publicly, demonstrate that you are the promised Messiah, and they'll accept it. You can't stand behind the stage Expect people to recognize you. You've got to get out front and center. You've got to get out in the public and perform your works in public. So go on down with us. Come on down with us down to the Feast of Tabernacles. All Jews are required to attend. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of Jews. You can go in the temple, perform some tremendous miracles. If you are what you claim to be, they'll accept you. But the writer of this gospel, John, makes clear that that was a suggestion motivated by unbelief because it says in John chapter 7, verse 5, neither did his brethren believe in him. They didn't believe in him. They were not believers. They were not disbelievers, but they were unbelievers. And it wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus that they became believers. Now Christ answers them, John chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Then Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify that its works are evil. So you go out to the feast. I don't go up yet into this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. Now Jesus said, I'm not going to go up. I'm not going to go up, and I'm not going to go up for two reasons. Two reasons. First one is in verse 6. What is the first reason? My time is not yet come. That's number one. The second reason is in the next verse, verse 8, 7. The world does what? 
hates me, if I get down there and do something publicly, it'll precipitate the crisis, the conflict. And it's not time for me yet to die. This is not the hour of my death, and I don't want to precipitate a crisis prematurely. My time, Jesus said in verse 6, my time has not yet come. Now, if I may be technical for just a minute, uh, there are two words that are used in the New Testament for time. One of them is uh, chronos, chronos. Now, you know what we get from that. Chronos, chronology. That's time in the sense of seconds and minutes and hours. Another word for time is the word K-A-I-R-O-S, kairos. And the word kairos means opportunity. The word chronos means time in the sense of minutes and hours and days. But chronos means opportunity. Kairos is the word here. My <clears throat> opportunity has not yet come. Uh, I preached recently on, John, on Ephesians chapter 15, 5, verse 16, where Paul says in Ephesians 5, 16, redeeming the time. The word time there is not chronos, it's kairos, which means opportunity. Redeeming the opportunity. In fact, I spoke to students, one old chapel on this. Redeeming the opportunity. You've got an opportunity now to study. Make the best of it. You've got an opportunity to preach. The weekend, make the best of it. You've got the opportunity to work. Make the best of it. Give them 60 minutes for an hour. And if you're required to be there four hours, be there four hours and ten minutes. Always go a little on, beyond what's expected. And work hard, because uh, what is important is not what you're doing to the job as a young person, what that job is doing to you in maturing you, cultivating you, developing character. This is your kairos, your opportunity. That's the word Jesus used here. My kairos, my hour of opportunity to die for sinners, to be raised again, isn't here yet. So I'm not going. Then he goes on to say, but your time is always ready. I'm operating within the plan of God, within the calendar of God. This isn't God's kairos. God's time for me to go up there. But you're unbelievers. And as unbelievers, you're not operating in the will of God. So it's a matter of difference when you go up. You're not subject to the will of God. You're not operating consciously within the plan of God. So it doesn't make any difference when you go. You go now. You can go later. You can go whenever you want to go. But I am operating in the will of God on the calendar of God. And this isn't the time for me to go up that way, the way you suggest at the present moment. But you go on up. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, the second reason I don't go up, the world hates, cannot hate you. It can't hate you because it doesn't hate uh, people who belong to it. And you belong to the world. You belong to it. So the world's not going to hate you, but I don't belong to it. Therefore, it's going to hate me. And if I go down there, it's going to hate me because I testify of it that it's sinful. Therefore, it's going to hate me. And uh, consequently, if I go down there, it'll precipitate a conflict. And I don't want to precipitate a conflict at this time. So verse 9, the conclusion, when he had said these words unto them, he stayed 
still in Galilee. Now let's look at the second thing. We'll have to conclude with this. Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. The divided opinion. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up to the feast. Not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's a deceiver. However, nobody spoke openly for fear of the Jews. Now, here is divided opinion. Verse 10, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now, some of you are going to have a different translation, and we need to look at it for just a minute. In John chapter 7, verse 8, it reads like this. If you've got a more recent translation, go ye up unto this feast. I go not up unto this feast. The King James has the word yet, but the later translations don't have the word yet. Now, some of you got a later translation? Who has one? Does it have yet in there? What? No, it doesn't. See, that probably belongs to a later text. I go up, not yet. And that raised a conflict. You get any commentary, they're going to describe this contradiction. Jesus said in verse 8, I don't go up to the feast. Verse 10, he goes on up to the feast. Now, how do we harmonize this? Well, some men harmonize it by putting the word yet in there. How do we harmonize it? Did Jesus deceive his disciples? Or did he change his plan? Neither one. How do we harmonize it? Well, we have to harmonize it in terms of the demand, which they made the request, or the demand. They said, go up to the feast to show yourselves openly, publicly, dramatically. Jesus said, I am not going up that way. And he didn't go up that way. He didn't go up with the intent of performing miracles and showing himself dramatically to the crowd. He didn't. But later on, he did go up, but not the way they requested and demanded. He went up the way that he had planned. So he went up. And you know, uh, he was up in the north and Jerusalem in the south. But Jerusalem is higher. So whenever you're going to Jerusalem, whether you're going north or coming from the north, going south, it's always up. So in verse 10 it says, When his brethren were gone up, then he went up also to the feast about the middle of it, but not openly, but in secret. Verse 11, the Jews sought him at the feast, said, where is he? They, <clears throat> by this time, by this time, the uh, notoriety of Jesus was, was spread all over Palestine. Now, you can't see 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fishes without it getting around. A couple of years ago, what had he done down in Jerusalem? What had he done a couple of years ago down in Jerusalem? John 5. No, no, down in Jerusalem. That was up in Galilee. John 5. Did we study that this year? We haven't studied this year. John chapter 5. Don't turn there. Don't you remember there was that impotent man? 
He was impotent for 37 years. And every, he was at the pool of Bethesda. Everybody in Jerusalem knew him. He was well known. 37 years there, well known. What did Jesus say? Get up. He got up instantaneously. Don't you think they remember that? 18 months later, you bet they did. They were well aware of it. And he performed a lot of miracles not recorded in the Gospel of John. And one of them is recorded in the Gospel of John. He fed 15, 20,000 people, a few loaves and fishes. So his fame had spread all over Jerusalem, all over Judea and all over Galilee, and up north of Galilee, and over across the Jordan River, what's called Perea, or Transjordan. His name was known all over, and consequently, the latter part of his ministry, he had to operate through his disciples more than operate directly. So he went and, you know, got down there, feasted tabernacles. Every Orthodox Jew expects you attend. He was Orthodox. So they looked around for him. Where is he? Where is he? Have you seen him? Where is he? What miracle will he perform this time? Where is he? And that led to divided opinion, verse 12. There's much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Now that's good. What's good? What's good is this, that the focus of the debate now is on who he is. See, the discussion here was who he is. No longer is it on the matter of breaking the Sabbath or feeding the 5,000 as it has been previously. No longer is it focused on a miracle, which is all right in itself. But now the question is, who is this man Jesus? That's good. That's good. Because that goes to the heart of our Christian faith. To that, there are only three answers. They got two of them here. They would conclude with the third. They got two of them here. One, he's either Lord, or he's a liar, or he's self-deluded, lunatic. Lord, liar, lunatic. Only three answers. Either he is, either he is uh, self-deceived, therefore lunatic, self-deceived, and uh, suffering from a tremendous hallucination. Or secondly, he is a fantastic liar, or he is precisely what he claims to be, the eternal son of God. And that's good that men are now debating his person rather than his work. And they're divided on that. But they didn't say it too loud, verse 13. No man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, let's conclude with this. Uh, one thing that uh, runs through the Gospels is that Jesus Christ is the divider of men. Uh, you remember Jesus said over in Matthew, and it's reported also in Luke, Think not that I am come to bring peace. I've come to bring war. I come not with the dove, but with the sword. I'm going to set father against son, daughter against mother, and brother against brother, husband against wife. I have come not to bring peace, but to bring war. What do you mean by that? He didn't mean by that that his intent was to divide families. He didn't mean by that that his intent 
was to divide whole. What he meant by that, I think, was this. That in the nature of the case, some families, one member of the family is going to choose for Christ. Another member of the family is going to choose against Christ. And when that happens, it's going to be a divided family. See, a home can be divided on a lot of things, but I suspect that the vision on strongly held Christian convictions will perhaps divide a home more than anything else. Do you remember whose home was divided on that? Paul's. Paul became a Christian. His family ostracized him. It often happens when Jews are converted to Christ. Paul said, I came, uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And I'm going to divide men. And Jesus divided men on four things. Let's look at these and we'll be through. First of all, he divided men on his person. That's John 7, verse 12. He divided men on the subject on this person. John 7, 12, and there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's a deceiver. He divides men on the subject of his person. They're divided on his person. Look over at John chapter 10, verse 19. John chapter 10, verse 19. John 10, verse 19, read. There was a division, therefore, uh, again, among the Jews, again, among the Jews, on account of these what? So he divides men on his teaching. Divides men on his teaching. Is that true today? You bet it is. And it's true even within the uh, professing church, within Christendom. They're divided on whether, uh, whether Jesus was right when he spoke on the subject of eternal punishment. They... Uh, they're divided on the question of whether Jesus was right or wrong on the, on the subject of marital infidelity. Uh, fidelity. They were divided on the question of, of uh, whether or not his teaching was right on the circle on the mount. The meek, for example, shall inherit the earth. Nietzsche, who was the father, the spiritual father of Hitler, Nietzsche scoffed at that. Might makes right. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit it. The qualities that Jesus, um, uh, the qualities that Jesus underscored and emphasized for his disciples are precisely those qualities at which the world scoffs. What are the qualities which he underscored? Uh, taken second place playing second fiddle, becoming, he who wants to be great, let him be what? Servant of all. That's not a quality the world admires. Patience, you turn one cheek, then go ahead and do what? Yeah, we don't like that, do we? Don't seek revenge. Vengeance is of God. I remember reading years ago in Reader's Digest while Stalin was still living. Stalin said, the most satisfying hour I find is at nighttime when I can lay on bed, on my bed, and plot my vengeance that I'm going to wreak upon my enemies. 
that's opposite entirely what Jesus said. See? He divides men according to his teaching. Now, we're faced, and we are faced, my friend, I hope you're listening to this, even in Christendom, on whether Jesus is right or wrong. Jesus believed in verbal inspiration. You know, the date, debate today in the mid uh, uh, latter part of the 20th century is inspiration. Is the Bible inerrant? hundred years ago, it was enough to say the Bible is the word of God. Then we had to add the word verbally inspired word of God, literally inspired word of God. Then we had to add the word infallible. But in the last 10 years, we've been men of arisen who said that the Bible is infallible. It never fails to teach truth. That's what infallible means. Doesn't fail. Doesn't fail to teach truth where it intends to teach truth. But it doesn't intend to teach truth in the chronology. So there may be mistakes there. So today we've got to add another word, which we did a year ago in our doctrinal statement. We revised it up and added one word, in error, no mistake. Now, when a person says, why do you believe in verbal inspiration? Do you know why? Not because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, oh, Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, that's good, but that's not why. Why do I believe in verbal inspiration? Because Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, believed it and taught it. He taught it. He said, Scripture cannot be broken. He said, not one jot nor tittle will pass away till it's all fulfilled. He appealed to the present tense of a verb lying back there 1,400 years, spoken by Moses. He appealed to the present tense of a verb to prove the doctrine of bodily resurrection, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus believed and taught verbal inspiration. Now, uh, my alternatives are very simple. Will I accept what Jesus taught, or will I not? See? Will I accept what Jesus taught? Will I say that Jesus made a mistake? I had a young fella come back. He went to this school for one year, back in 1953-54. Then left it, went to the Army, attended a seminary in the South, and uh, came under the teaching professor who said that Jesus made a mistake when he said that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds. And when he got through a seminary, he came up and confronted me with that. He happens to be over in Nashville today. He's not in the gospel ministry, which is a very fortunate thing. See, I don't say that facetiously. If a man can't believe the Bible is inerrant, then he ought not to be, in, in my opinion, ought not to be in the gospel ministry. Now, why do I believe the Bible is inerrant? Because Jesus taught it. Now, the alternatives are very simple. Either Jesus made a mistake, or, and he therefore was wrong on the mustard seed, and wrong about Jonah being a historical figure, and wrong about creation, because he made a mistake, or else he's God, and he's capable of making mistakes. Now, men get around that by two ways. They say Jesus emptied himself as omniscient. That's called the Kenotic theory, very popular in England. He emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. Our answer to that is, number one, there's no evidence of that in the Bible. He could read the hearts of men. He could foretell the future. 
But more than that, if he did empty himself of his attributes, then he's not God, and it's not God that died on the cross. Therefore, his atonement can't save an infinite number of sinners. The other way is to say that Jesus, this very popular among moderate liberals, among people who want to teach the deity of Jesus, but deny verbal inspiration. They say that Jesus accommodated himself to the errors of his day. He knew better. He knew the mustard seed wasn't small. He knew that Jonah wasn't historical. He knew that the creation story was a myth, not fact. He knew that. But he accommodated himself to the teaching of that day. And, of course, what we say is that involves Jesus in deception and fraud. And if he accommodated himself there, how do we know he didn't accommodate himself when he spoke about marital fidelity? And how do we know he didn't accommodate himself when he spoke about eternal hell and about heaven? How do we know he didn't accommodate himself on all these subjects? That opens Pandora's box. The last analysis, when we come to the teaching of Jesus, we have to go behind that and ask ourselves, who is this man? Is he God or is he not? If he's God, then what he said is true. What did he say? The Bible is inerrant. There is such a place as hell, and I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Why do I believe in hell? Because Jesus, the Lord of the church, why do you believe that he's the only way to God? Because Jesus, the Lord of the church, is. Why do I believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture? Because Jesus, the Lord of the church, is. Why do I believe these? Where do I pitch my argument? I pitch it on the person of Christ. That's where it lies. If he is God, if he's the Lord of the church, then I've got to submit to his authority. Divided on his teaching. Third, Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 51. The third division, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Luke 12, 49. Uh, here's that verse. Verse 49. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already killed? I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, if you listen to my radio broadcast, you know I spent one whole radio message on this baptism right here. I have a baptism to be baptized with. It can't be as water baptism. He was baptized in water two years ago. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How I am bound in constraint until it is accomplished. Of course, that baptism is the baptism of his atoning death at the cross. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but I've come to give what? Give what? Division. And uh, verse, for henceforth there shall be five in one house, divided. Three against two, two against three. Father shall be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. Now, you can kind of understand that one. <laughs> the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You know, they say that mixed emotions is seeing your 
<clears throat> Nick's emotion is seeing your mother-in-law drive off the cliff in your new Cadillac. <laughs> now, may I hasten to say that I have always had excellent relationships with my mother-in-law and father-in-law. And I've always had, I, I can indulge these jokes because I've got such good relationships. In fact, she always tends to side with me. Uh, that's why she's good. <laughs> but I've always had excellent relationships, and I love them, and they've been wonderful to me all through the years. But you see, Jesus speaks of division, division. Not peace, but division. Now, I didn't come primarily, but as a result, when a man takes a stand for Jesus, he's going to take a stand against the world. A stand for Jesus is a stand against the world. You can't have a positive without a negative. So a stand for Jesus means a stand against the world. Now, what are they going to be divided on here? What are they going to be divided on here? Now, look at the verse. Don't look at my face. It's not there. What are they going to be divided on? His death. I have a baptism to be baptized with. I'm accomplished. Now I'm bound in, held in, grace until it be fulfilled. The same word, tetelestai, that's used when he says it is finished. What is that baptism? Well, in Matthew, Matthew, now look here, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I have a cup to drink. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And are you able to drink the cup which I shall drink? What is that cup? That's the cup of the wrath of God, which he drank at Calvary. What is the baptism? That's the baptism of divine judgment, which fell upon him at Calvary, when all the waves and billows of God's judgment rolled over him. Now, you know I'm an immersionist. <laughs> See, all the waves. Now, that was to be facetious. But all the waves and the billows of God's judgment rolled over him. He was baptized in the divine judgment. And then he says, men are going to be divided. What are they going to be divided on? Come on, now, what are they going to be divided on? What are they going to be divided on? Yes, and are men divided on that today? You bet they are. Just about Easter time, pick up the newspaper, read the editorial. What does it say? That Jesus Christ died as a martyr for a great cause? Set us an example of love. Now, these are elements of truth. But the last analysis, Jesus died as a substitutionary atonement. And the theological world is divided on the question of the nature of Jesus' death. I say the nature of Jesus' death is penal, vicarious, satisfactory. The death he died was a penal death. He bore the penalty of sin. Vicarious, he bore it in your place and mine, not his own. The satisfaction, by his death, he satisfied the claims of heaven against you and me. Now, uh, people ask me from time to time, is the word 